Well, if you return with me in your Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 18, uh, Luke 18, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 8 uh, of a parable uh, that Jesus uh, spoke. And as he speaks this parable, he's just been uh, telling his disciples about his second coming. So Luke chapter 18 from verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who, was ni- who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time, he refused. But finally, he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is God's Word. And I've entitled this uh, sermon, uh, A Vision for Prayer. A Vision uh, for Prayer. Uh, This is one of those relatively rare occasions when Sunday falls on New Year's Day. Uh, It happens about 10 to 11 times uh, every 100 years. Uh, And with a new year ahead of us, I want to encourage all of us to prayer over this new year. Uh, You may or may not be into resolutions uh, every new year. In fact, uh, January is a pretty rubbish time, actually, to make resolutions because it's dark and cold. Uh, But I want to encourage you uh, to a resolution this year that doesn't have to involve you getting cold and wet by going out running around the block. Uh, It's a resolution to prayer. Uh, You can pray in your home, you can put the heating on if you wish, uh, and you can pray in the warm. But I want to encourage you this year uh, to resolve to pray. Now, sermons on prayer uh, can often be quite demoralizing and guilt-ridden, and that is not my intention this morning. I don't intend uh, to preach a sermon that is just a bash on the head, but rather this is a call to the heart through the mind, with a vision of what could be if we would be a people of prayer. And God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to work through the prayers of his people. There is a direct correlation 
between uh, the prayers of God's people and the blessing upon God's people. Now, that's not me saying that every single little thing we pray for will receive the exact answer that we have asked for. But what I am saying is this. There is a direct correlation between the prayers of God's people and the power of God at work through those people. It is interesting to note in Luke chapter 11 that the disciples of Jesus asked him to teach them to pray. Now I wonder, if you were with Jesus, what would you ask him to teach you? Because they only ever asked him to teach them one thing, prayer. Now, I may have asked him, Jesus, teach me how to multiply bread. Jesus, teach me how I can walk on water. Teach me how I can do all these amazing things you do. But they asked him, teach us, Lord, to pray. Why? Because they would have noticed something about Jesus' prayer life and as in fact John the Baptist, because they asked him to teach them to pray like John taught his disciples to pray, but they see a direct correlation between the power of Jesus and what he did in all those miracles and the prayer life of Jesus. And so they asked him to teach them to, to pray. That's interesting, isn't it? And in this particular section of Luke's gospel, Jesus has been speaking about his second coming and what precedes it. He explains about how the days will be difficult, like the days of Noah and the days of Sodom. And although primarily Jesus is referring to the fact that the judgment of God at the second coming will be a surprise to people, there is something to be said about those evil days being days in which his people live in all the time until he does return. And we live in dark days, don't we, where sin And the effects of sin are abounding all around us. And it's in the context of these days, these last days, this present evil age, where Jesus tells his disciples a parable about prayer, a lesson on prayer. And what we see in this parable is an explanation, an illustration, and an application. And we're going to look at those three things. So first of all, there is the explanation. We find this in verse 1. The commentator Matthew Henry says that this parable has its key hanging at the door. It's a, a, a lovely way of putting it. In other words, you go to the door of this parable to find out what it means and the key is right there for us. We don't have to work out what it means because we, as we read Luke, he tells us in verse 1 the explanation. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So they are to always pray. Now this doesn't mean, of course, that we are to constantly be performing the act of prayer, but it does mean that we are to have regular times of prayer, to be always ready to pray, and to have prayer as a habit of life, and and always be in a, a spirit of prayer, of communion with God. Always pray. And secondly, linked to this, they are to not give up. The idea here is of wearying, of of losing heart, of, of stopping because the conviction to pray is no longer there. Because in Luke 17, when Jesus speaks of his return, he says that there is a delay. Uh, just turn back to verse 22 of, of Luke 17. 
Jesus says this, the time of, uh, is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. So people are longing for his return, and they haven't seen it, and so the temptation is to, to give up praying, uh, to give up looking, to give up longing. And when there is discouragement and the difficulties of living in this present evil age is upon us, we can lose heart, can't we? We can think, well, God isn't answering my prayers. God isn't working in our lives. Jesus isn't coming back. What's the point? We can lose heart and give up. Have you ever felt like that? I think we do, don't we, from time to time? Feel like giving up. We weary in our prayer lives. We think, what's the point? Well, Jesus speaks this parable so that we would always pray and not give up or lose heart or weary. And although this passage specifically relates to the difficulties of our world and the causes that um, we face that are hard and difficult, I want to focus our minds just for a moment on the barriers to us praying and what causes us to give up. I mean, think about it. What stops you from praying? What stops you from coming to prayer meetings and prayer services? What, is it that, what are the barriers that, that we all face? For some of us, it may be the difficulties of life are causing us to be wearied. But there are other reasons too, aren't there? So there may be a lack of confidence. You may lack confidence. Uh, you might not feel confident that God answers prayer. Or you may not feel confident in your ability to pray. You may not feel confident to pray in front of others. You may lack confidence, and that's a barrier. Do you feel that sometimes? There may be a lack of conviction. Sometimes we are spiritually cold, and we don't pray because perhaps we don't feel that we need to pray. It's a dangerous place to be, but it's true, isn't it? From time to time, we get cold. Uh, then there's the barrier, perhaps, of a lack of time. We may be too busy. Uh, we, we, we don't have the time to, to come to, to pray with others. We don't have time even to pray ourselves. We think we, well, we're just so busy with so many things going on. That's a barrier, isn't it, for some? Then there's the barrier of awkwardness. I hear this many times. Um, people find praying awkward. Uh, we, we don't come to prayer meeting or prayer service because it feels awkward. It's, it is awkward at times, isn't it, to, to sit with people we don't know and, don't, and, and, and sometimes even people we, we've never met, sometimes people we might not even like very much, and to pray with them. It's, it's awkward. Uh, perhaps we, we find silence awkward. And at, at prayer meetings, there is times where no one's praying and we're sitting there thinking, oh, this is so awkward and and we're starting to sweat and get hot and thinking, will someone please pray? And we don't feel we can do it ourselves. And it's just, just awkward. And you may find it awkward because you're sitting there thinking, others are expecting me to pray and I don't feel confident to pray out loud and it's just a horrible experience. We can acknowledge that that is the case for some, isn't it? And for some, there may be a barrier of prayer meetings being simply boring. Uh, 
prayer meetings may be boring. Maybe we need to work on making it less boring, but there's only so much you can do um, because the purpose is to pray. But it can be a barrier, can't it? Well, we'll look again later on at those barriers and see if we can break them down a bit. But I want to break them down with the vision for prayer that Jesus gives us here in Luke 18. For if we had a vision of what could be if we were a people of prayer, the barriers are much easier to break down. And this vision is illustrated with this parable. So we have the explanation, we should always pray and not give up. And secondly, we have the illustration. And in this parable, there are two main characters. There are the judge and the widow. So first of all, we're introduced in verse 2 to the judge. Now, towns throughout the Roman Empire would have had judges or local magistrates who were Roman appointees. And they were responsible for judging criminal and civil cases and for looking after the interests of the Roman Empire. And the judge here was everything, though, a judge should not be. He was rubbish. He was a rubbish judge. Um, In terms of the Jewish law, he broke the two great commandments. He did not love God and he did not love others. His not fearing God here meant that he, he had no reverence or respect for God. He had no regard for God's will or his law. So you have a judge who has no interest at all in righteousness. Which is crazy, isn't it? You'd think, well, he's a judge. He should be interested in what's right, but not this judge. He didn't care at all for righteousness. He also did not care about what other people thought. Now, this uh, may mean that he's he's not concerned of their opinion, which is true. But he also is not concerned for their needs. He doesn't care about others. Again, an interesting judge. No care for what's right. No concern for the needs of others. One writer describes him like this. He is an utterly amoral human being and his wickedness has all kinds of tragic implications because he was making daily decisions that affected people's lives. This was an unjust judge. No regard for God, no care for others in a position of power as a judge. And as a judge, he would be high up in society as well. And he would be the opposite, therefore, to the second character in this story, this widow. Now, when we think of widows, I don't know what you think of, but most of us probably think of an elderly lady. Uh, An elderly lady. That's what we have in our minds. But here, we shouldn't really think like that because the death rate was much higher and often younger people were widows. And so this could be any uh, lady, really, from her 20s upwards in age. The key to understanding her is not her age, but rather the fact that she was vulnerable and she was dependent on others for help. In this culture, the courts belonged to the men. And unless she received help from a man of some kind, she would continually be destitute. And this woman, it seems, had everything taken from her, probably by some relative of her deceased husband. And she had been defrauded in some way. And unless she had help, she would be always destitute. 
And it seemed that she had no man in her life to help her. And so she pleads with this judge from a sense of desperation. She didn't come to the judge because she felt it was her duty. She didn't come to the judge because she thought she ought to. She came to the judge because she was desperate. She had nowhere else she could turn. She had no help from anyone else. And she knew she needed help. And so she comes to this judge with a desperate plea. And that's how we come to God, by the way, in desperate need of his help. Knowing that he's the only one that can make our longing for righteousness to be fulfilled. Look at her plea in verse 3. She comes to this judge, desperate. Grant me justice against my adversary. It seems that someone, probably her family, had stolen her inheritance. Or not provided for her as they legally should have. And the judge has the power to make this right. And so she goes to him. And notice in verse 3 how how Jesus says the widow kept coming to him with the plea. No doubt at first, this unjust judge who didn't care about anybody, cared not one jot for this poor widow. And he would have thrown her out. But she kept coming back. Uh, She would follow him around wherever he went, pleading with him, shouting at him. Uh, she'd call at him from a distance. She'd knock on his door. She wouldn't leave him alone. If he'd go out down the street, there was this woman pleading with him. Grant me justice against my adversary. Over and over and over again. This would have gone on for a long time. This would have been most irritating, most embarrassing. This was a relentless, persistent pursuit of justice from a woman that was desperate. And verse 4 tells us that for some time, he refused. For some time. Now this judge was unlikely to help this widow. She couldn't bribe him. There was no benefit to this judge in helping this woman. No benefit at all. He would only really help people that could benefit him in some way. But her persistence paid off. Notice what happens in verses 4 and 5. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. This is quite funny because the literal translation of attack me is to strike under the eye. So he's literally saying, man, if I don't give this woman what she wants, she's going to give me a black eye. Because she never stopped. She wears him down. She bothers him over and over and over again. And so eventually there was a benefit to this judge. It wasn't a a bribe. It was so he could get rid of her. So she'll leave me alone. She won't give me a black eye. And I can get back to my comfortable life and not be bothered anymore. She was embarrassing him. She was tiring him out. And in the end, her persistence was stronger than his obstinance. And so the woman gets justice. She gets it not because of her eloquence, She didn't get it because of the length of her plea. It was just a few words. Grant me justice against my adversary. She gets it because of her persistence. Do you see? And this is the illustration of the kind of intercession that should characterize us as Christians. Constant, persistent, pleading prayer. 
And so, thirdly, we come to the application. Jesus begins to apply this by telling us to listen, in verse 6, listen to what the unjust judge says. Now, what we're listening to is that the unjust judge said, I'll give her justice because she is bothering me so much. Jesus calls the judge unjust. He's showing that even this judge, even this man, who has no regard for God or others, even he, without a basic um, decency in his bones, who was barren of virtue, even he gave justice to this woman. Now his point isn't, and God is just like the unjust judge. The point is, from the lesser to the greater, if this unjust judge would give justice to this widow, how much more will God give justice to his people? Because God isn't like the unjust judge, is he? Our Father in heaven is the opposite to the unjust judge. If the widow carried on her campaign for justice with this unjust judge, how much more should we persist in prayer with our Father in heaven? How can we think of giving up when he hasn't answered our prayer, when he's so vastly different to the unjust judge? Notice this truth in verse 7. Jesus says, And will not God, who's unlike the unjust judge, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Now, there are a number of ways from this verse and from the parable that we can see that God and the judge and the widow and us as God's people are so vastly different. So here's, here's a few. The judge is devoid of all character. He's unkind and cruel. But God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The widow was a perfect stranger to this judge, wasn't she? But we are, in verse 7, his chosen ones. We are the bride of Christ. We are the children of God. We have an intimate relationship with the one we plead with that we can cry out, Abba, Father. We're not strangers to God like the widow was to the judge. The widow was without a friend to help her. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And we have brothers and sisters in the church all around us, praying with us, going to the Father together. This widow had no promise to encourage her that this judge would give her justice. In fact, the opposite was the case. She really had no hope. We have all the promises of God that he will answer our prayers, all through his word. This woman had no right to access the judge. We come to God with every right boldly through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This woman provoked the judge's anger and he only answered her because he wanted to get shot of her. Our Father in heaven loves, loves it when we come to him and pray. He loves to hear our voice. His door isn't shut. His door is open and he wants us to come. And this judge, he had no interest at all in the welfare of this woman 
and had no interest at all in the suit that she brought to him. But God, our Father, is more interested in the prayers that we offer up for his kingdom than even we are when we go to him. And so if this widow got justice through her persistence, then so shall we as we persistently pray to our Father in heaven. Can you see the, the, the vast difference? Can you see the, the vision for what could be if we prayed? I mean, goodness, this unjust judge gave her justice. How much more then, if we were to be the people of prayer that we're called to be, would our Father in heaven give us justice? Now, it's worth defining here what is meant by the word justice because it appears four times in the passage, that the Greek actually means vengeance or vindication, which you might not think is a very uh, nice thing to pray for, but it is all through the Scriptures. Psalm 55, that was read earlier, is a, is a plea for, for vengeance and vindication. What this means is that the woman doesn't just want to be restored, she wants the evildoers punished. We pray that God would make an end to evil. That's what's going on here. A couple of weeks ago, um, I I preached from Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28, where Jesus speaks of his return, bringing salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him. But the other side of that coin, as we pray for the return of Jesus Christ, is that the evildoers will be judged for their evil, and that the righteous are rewarded because of what uh, has been done for Christ, But judgment comes and wrong is made right. It's two sides of the same coin, do you see? If we're praying that God would come to make all things new and make all things right, we are praying at the same time that justice would be done on evil. And this is answered in two particular ways. First of all, we pray for the conversion of the lost so that the punishment for evil falls on Christ for those who are saved. So that's how we pray for justice, first of all. We pray for the conversion of the lost. But secondly, we pray for an end of evil in the world, that wrong would be made right. And we see this answered in part now. We see it answered when people are converted, but we also pray in the here and now for justice. We, we pray against evils, such as the, the killing of the unborn, such as the exploitation of children, such as slavery and pornography and, and, and such things that are evils in our world. We pray that God would make an end to them now. And it's right that we pray that God would deliver us also from the effects of sin in this world when we're praying for a holiness of life. And even when we're praying for things like healing and for daily bread and so on, we're we're praying against the evils of this world that God would intervene and, and make things right to bring his kingdom into our lives. But ultimately, we pray for the return of Jesus so that all these things are finally and fully made an end of. And we hasten the return of Christ as we plead with God to save the lost and for Jesus to return. Because God works through the prayers of his people, he's working through the prayers of his people even for the timing of the return of Jesus Christ. And it's because of the lost 
that Jesus has not yet returned. That's why praying for the salvation of the lost is so linked to the return of Jesus. Look again at the end of verse 7. His people cry out to him day and night, so persistently, and then he says, will he keep putting them off? I think the idea here is of delaying. Will God keep delaying the prayers of his people for justice? And the answer is, no. He won't delay forever. But I think we can answer this kind of question with Peter uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why does God put off his people's pleas? Not because he's like the unjust judge, who doesn't want to get involved in the, lives of this widow, in the life of this widow, but rather, God doesn't respond because he is involved in the lives of this world. He's involved in bringing people to repentance. As we pray for the lost... We're praying that people would be saved and we're praying at the same time that all God's people would be brought in so Jesus would return. And when that happens, all justice will be done. Now, if we understand this, the directions of our prayers will be less about our comforts and our privileges and our rights and more about the success of the preaching of the gospel, won't it? Now, there is a place, of course, in our prayer lives for the temporal things of this life. God, our Father, is concerned with our dodgy joints and our small decisions. But these should not be what all of our prayers, or even most of our prayers, are about. We should be praying big prayers. Prayers like, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should be pleading day and night for the lost to be found, for Jesus to return, to make all things new, for justice to be done. And notice the promise in verse 8 of how God will answer our prayers. Will he put us off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. I think the quickly here is in the context of eternity. When we're in eternity and we look back, we will realize that all was in God's perfect timing and we'll realize it was quick. But the point here is not really the speed of God's answers as much as the confidence that we should have that he will answer our prayers in his perfect timing. Just imagine what God could do if we all lift our voices together in prayer. One widow, one widow got justice from an unjust judge. We as a, congregate, as a church have 120 members. Can you imagine what could happen, what God would do if 120 of his chosen ones were pleading with him for the lost to be found, for justice to be done? Can you imagine what God would do? That's the vision for prayer that Jesus gives in this parable. And so with that vision in mind, let's think again of those, of those barriers 
to prayer that we thought of earlier. So we may lack confidence in prayer. We don't need to lack confidence that God will answer. We've seen that clearly, haven't we? God will answer our prayers. But sometimes our prayers aren't answered in our lifetimes. Did you know, I am, well, I say did you know, I'm, I believe, I'm confident, that when we get to glory, there will be people there who are saved because of the prayers of people that were dead when that person got saved. Prayers that have been answered of people that prayed their whole lives and never saw an answer to their prayers. But God answered it long after they had gone. That's amazing, isn't it? That's a, an encouragement to persist in praying, especially those who, of you who have children that are not saved. Keep praying for them. Always pray and never give up for our families because God may answer it long after you're gone. But some of you may lack confidence in your ability to pray. But notice, notice that this woman's prayer wasn't eloquent. It was simple, wasn't it? God isn't after your eloquence. Much, in fact, he, he doesn't want your babbling. He wants simple, heartfelt prayers to a father from his children. And neither should we be judging each other's prayers. If you're at prayer meeting and you have a simple prayer, don't ever think that, oh, they must be judging my simple prayer. If they are, more for them. Your voice in prayer is an encouragement to every single person that's there. So don't lack confidence. Secondly, lack of conviction. Well, how can we be cold when so many people are lost? I think if we lack conviction, we don't feel the need to pray. We just need to look around us. Let's be praying at the very least for a burden to pray. Lack of time. Now for sure, uh, not everyone can come to every prayer meeting, but I would ask, what are you doing instead? Because our lack of prayer is not often as much as a lack of time as it is a lack of priority, is it not? This is true in our private prayer life as well as public but if we could just grasp what God can do through the prayers of all of his people, it's certainly worth, isn't it, sacrificing our time for? And then let's address the issue of, of awkwardness. I know this is hard, but the more that you come together to pray, the less awkward it will be. And I just want to say a word to those who feel awkward because they don't feel like they can pray out loud. That's a problem for a number of Christians. And my answer is not, well, you should just do it. I understand that it's hard. Here's how I would answer that. First of all, you can practice with your family or on your own. But here's a better answer even than that. Did you know every single time that a group of Christians say amen to a prayer, all of those Christians are praying with the person that's praying. So when we come to pray from the, the, the front here on a Sunday, for example, often and rightly we say, let us pray. Let us pray. And then the person leads in prayer, and then they say amen, and the congregation all together say amen. 
And when the congregation are saying amen, they are praying with that person. And so when I've prayed this morning, and I don't know how many, say, just say there's 100 people here. When I've prayed this morning and I've said amen, and 100 others of God's people have said amen, 100 people have prayed. Do you see? So when you are there at the prayer meeting or the prayer service, and you don't pray out loud, every time you say amen, you are praying. Do you see? And when all of God's people are gathered praying together, that's a a, a huge thing. Because our Father in heaven is is seeing his people together praying with the amens. I hope that encourages you with the awkwardness. And then finally, the, the, the barrier of prayer meeting being boring. Well, there is a challenge for us, I think, as leaders to make prayer meetings dynamic and and, and, and such things. However, a lot of, of our um, uh, feelings on this, I think, can be toward, to, with our attitude towards praying. If we come expecting it to be boring and rubbish, the likelihood is, for you, it will be so. But if we come and we think, that, that persistent widow, she prayed to the unjust judge and he gave her justice. I'm going to a meeting with God's chosen ones. And we're going to pray together and just imagine what God could do with this meeting. And if we come with that attitude, it will change our thinking about boring. As we conclude, I want to draw your attention uh, to the end of verse 8. Because we have the word, however, which indicates a change in emphasis. Uh, Jesus has shown us here a vision for prayer. A people persistently praying to a God who will answer them, but there's a sting in the tail. Look at the end of verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now remember, the context of this parable is the return of Jesus Christ at his second advent. What is the faith he's talking about? Well, it can't be talking about whether there will be Christians on earth, because there will be. Because he's not going to return until all the people that are going to be Christians are. So he's not talking about will he find believers. In the context of this parable, there is a link to prayer, isn't there? And here's the thinking. Prayer is one of the, the vital signs of faith. If you, go into, uh, if you um, have an ambulance come for you because something's happened to you, and you go in the ambulance or you get to the hospital... They will take your vital signs, won't they? I'm, I'm right, yeah? <laughs> they take the vital signs, looking at the nurses. Um, so, um, body temperature, pulse, and such things. Those are, are vital signs. If you don't have those things, you're, you're not alive, I would guess. Certainly, if you haven't got a pulse, you're not. But when the Lord Jesus Christ looks at the life of the church, the vital signs, what does he look for? Well, according to this parable, he looks for prayer, doesn't he? Faith and prayer are linked. If, If I have faith, I will pray. If I don't pray, then you have to question my faith. And I think that Jesus is showing us this because he knows how hard prayer is and how easily it slips. And it's so hard because Satan knows. He knows how the prayer of a righteous person avails much. 
And so we have to ask the question, if the Lord Jesus returned today, would he find faith in Pelsall Evangelical Church? Now we have a, a, a calendar at the back with lots happening in 2023. There is evangelism, there is fellowship, there is children and youth work, there are Christmas events for Christmas 2023 that are all very good and all very exciting. But if Jesus returned, he's not going to look at the calendar. He looks for a praying people. And so the most important activity on the calendar is the prayer meetings of the church, isn't it? And if we attended all those as much as we can, we can expect God to work in a huge way with all the other things that we have on there. Imagine what God could do if in Pelsall we would be earnestly praying, crying out to him day and night. Now God has blessed us as a church over this year. He really has. We have seen uh, baptisms this year. Uh, we had wonderful experience of a Christmas with the carol services and all these things. And it's wonderful. God is working. But there are thousands and thousands of people just around this building that are on their way to a lost eternity. And if God is blessing us as he is, imagine how much more if all of us would really be praying. Imagine what God could do. That's the vision for prayer that this parable offers us. And what better resolution could you make for 2023 than that? To pray with expectancy to our Father in heaven that he would work in a powerful way. Well, let's... Uh, close with uh, a song before we come to the Lord's table. Uh, we're going to sing uh, Be Thou My Vision, which is a prayer and a good prayer for the beginning of a new year that God would be our vision as a church. Let's stand and sing together. <laughs>